Verse 7. Now when the thousand years are finished, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will go out and deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth. Satan is released to which he deceives the nations. Why would Christ do this? Why bind up Satan for a thousand years and then just release him again for one last hurrah, for lack of a better phrase, of rallying up a bunch of unbelievers? And I think the idea is just to show you the devil didn't make you do it. The Bible makes it very clear that we are to resist the world, the devil, and the flesh. And without the devil, we still have the flesh. We are sinners. And I believe that even when the devil, if there was no devil, we would still sin. We would still do the things. And I think that's very scriptural. And like I said, I have a very highly developed sense of the depravity of humanity. And okay, here's the other thing you must understand. First, the devil has no idea who you are. They have no idea who I am. The devil is a finite being who is limited to one place at one time because he's not God. And so where do you think the devil's spending most of his time? With Trump and Biden and Vladimir Putin and like, right, the big movers and shakers of the earth or whatever the biggest and newest antichrist figures rising up on some farm somewhere who's going to become the next David Koresh or, or Jim Jones. Like, right, that's so there are hierarchies. And as there are hierarchy in humans, there's hierarchy in demons. We are just getting demonic influence and stuff. And there's a good chance that most of the day, there's no demon anywhere around you. I believe that in the Christian school that I'm at, there's probably quite a few demons there because we're a Christian school. And when you're gathering on church on Sunday morning or when you're leaving out your door with your kids on the way to church on Sunday morning, there's probably a lot of demons right there in that moment. But in your just everyday, normal, mundane life, there probably, there's not necessarily like necessarily a little demon on your shoulder all the time, right? I think you're just doing pretty good on your own, committing sins and not trusting God and that kind of stuff. I don't mean that as an insult towards you. I, that's me too. I, I, I just think we're very capable on our own. I really think we as Christians and as humans for a long time are really good at blaming other things. The devil made me do it, or the devil's tempting me, or the devil made us have a flat tire on the way to Christian camp. The devil, the devil, the devil, the devil. We tend to like to blame the devil for a lot of things. And I don't think that we really have a fully developed concept of how simple we really are. And how much of you in you, when you say, I don't feel like reading the Bible, or this is kind of boring right now, or you know, I know what the right thing to do is, but I'm going to do it anyways, or I'm too lazy or tired to do the right thing, or I'm losing my temper and yelling at my kids, or I decided to get caught up in the gossip and talk about people at work, or, or even, even worse things. I'm still struggling with my addictions um, that just keep dragging me down. That's you. That's me. I think the devil offers temptations here and there. The devil has me in the demonic world. But largely speaking, I think we do a pretty good job on our own. And I think what, the, I think what Christ is saying is, I'm going to show you how evil you really truly are as humans. And I'm going to get rid of everything. The beast is gone. The dragon is gone. Babylon is gone. The world, all the philosophies of the world found in Babylon is gone. The devil is gone. All that's left, literally, literally all that is left is your flesh. And even when Christ is literally, perfectly, 
reigning on earth. He is the dictator, emperor, king, whatever you want to call him, of the entire planet. And everything he does is perfect. Everything he does is good. Everything he does is without sin. And everything he does is for your best interest because he proved it by dying for you while you were still a sinner. At the end of that, there are going to be people who are going to live under that for multiple generations. At the end of all of that, they're still going to say, screw you and screw you reign. I hate you. I'm willing to join an army and kill you. And even if I'm not willing to join the army and kill you, I'm willing to cheer my family members on who joined that army. Because that's who we are. And it's showing you how evil we really are. And it's showing you that we really cannot do this without Christ. We can't do without Christ. We can't blame the devil. And that it also means this. Some people are like, well, what? what it, Christ is so dang awesome that right when people die and they stand before God, they're definitely going to accept him, right? Hell is completely empty because who would stand before Christ after they die? Maybe they didn't get it in this life, but who would stand before Christ and say, I don't want that? Well, I can tell you, first of all, Satan and all the demons. And humans are no different. Not every human, but humans in general. And I think what it's answering is, you can literally stand in the full presence and glory of Christ and still say, I don't want that. I do believe that some people will be given the chance to accept Christ, like little kids and that kind of stuff, and babies that are dying young, and when they die and go to heaven, some people didn't really know... I, I do believe there's some people who don't know the gospel and they die before they could hear it. And, and God is a fair and just God and will give them an opportunity to make that decision. Or he knows them well enough that he knows what they would have made if they heard the gospel. And you may disagree with me and think that's heresy. I don't really think that's heresy. I'm not saying it's true. I'm just saying I'm willing to accept that that's, I think he's a good God. But here's the thing. The parable of Lazarus and the rich man is a great example. So Lazarus and the rich man, they both die and Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom the place that the believers went before they went to heaven and the rich man goes to hell the rich man says to Abraham he doesn't say oh my gosh I was so wrong I want to I want to follow God I want to repent of my sins I want to be with God what he says is Abraham send Lazarus over here to serve me even in the afterlife he's still treating Lazarus like a slave. He says, send him over here. Give him, make him give me a drop of water so I can... Th- this is horrible. This is miserable. He should get up and cross over here and serve me and give it to me. And then Abraham says, no, that's not possible. There's a great chasm between us and we can't cross. And even if we could, there's no way over. And he says, no, Abraham, you're wrong. That's what the parable. That's the parable Jesus tells. He's still, even in hell, he's unrepentant. He's arrogant and prideful, and he thinks he knows more and is better than Abraham, and that Lazarus is still just a slave to serve him in this hellish experience. And then he commands them to send somebody to go tell his brothers. And Abraham's like, look, resurrection's not going to convince them. They're either convinced by the truth or they're not, but resurrection will not convince people who are not going to be convinced. And it's a foreshadowing of even when Jesus rises from the dead, people are still not willing to embrace him. And that parable, Jesus is making very clear that there are people who are very content and happy to not be with Christ. 
even when they're being tormented to the point that they're desperate for even a drop of water. And even in that moment, they're unrepentant, and they still treat other people like objects to be exploited. And they still think that they're better and they know more than even people like Abraham. And that's the mark of the unbeliever. And this is why in Jack London's book series, he says it's better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. And I don't mean Jack London believed that, but he has a character in his story that quotes it. And that might have come from something else, um, but that's where I read it. Some people actually believe that. Some people actually believe that. And so I think that's why he's releasing them, just to make all these points. Your flesh is evil enough on its own. You can't blame the devil. And there are people who are still willing to reject Christ even when he's there with them perfectly and reigning. And I think that's the point that is being made. So now when the thousand years were finished, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to bring them together for the battle. They are as numerous as the grains of the sand of the sea. And they went up on the broad plain of the earth and encircled the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them completely. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire, sulfur, where the beasts and the false prophets are too. And they will be tormented there day and night forever and ever. The idea is that they're already ready to go against Christ. That the sin nature's there. They're ready to oppose. Satan's just giving them the opportunity. And he gathers up an army. And Gog and Magog come together to go against God. Now there's a lot of discussion about this. This is Russia. It can't be any nation that we know. Because all those nations were already destroyed in chapter 19. So when people are like, this is Russia and that kind of stuff, I mean, maybe it's new Russia or new, but even then it wouldn't be Russia, Russia, um, because all the nations have been destroyed. All the kings have been destroyed. All the presidents have been destroyed. That All the powers to be in chapter 19. The sword came out of Christ's mouth and destroyed them. The world and the nations as we know it don't exist. And Christ has been reigning. He's been reigning for a thousand years. That's plenty of time. The culture is not necessarily a race, but the idea of the government. There's not like, it's not like the old Slovio block is still there, even though the wall came down and there's people trying to bring it back up. It's been thousands of years. If you're an amillennialist, I get, okay, this might be Russia or something like that. I get that and I respect that. Um, but if you're a premillennialist, thousand years is a long time to race any evidence with Christ reigning of any kind of form of government that we have ever known, any structure whatsoever. Christ has been completely and absolutely and totally reigning perfectly. So it's, it's just gone. It might be Russia or something like that, but here's the thing. Gog and Magog are actually not two different things. This comes from Ezekiel chapter 38 through 39. And in Ezekiel, it is called Gog of Magog meaning Gog who comes from the region of Magog, not Gog and Magog. This is obviously a typology for a conglomeration of many nations. As you read through Ezekiel, he kind of makes it very clear from the context, and you can go back to my teaching on Ezekiel, that we're talking about Gog of Magog represent all the nations coming together and coming against Israel. And by not, I don't mean like every single nation, but the nations in that region who would have been opposing Israel during the time of the Babylonians. And they're all coming together, and this is a conglomeration. 
And in that moment, God kills Gog of Magog three different times. Sends an earthquake that swallows them up. Um, it sends a fire coming down that destroys them. And then, then like the birds and the beasts come and destroy him. He dies by the sword and they feed on them and that kind of stuff. So it's obvious that this is all metaphorical. It's not like God failed to kill him and then tried again and then failed and tried again. It's not like God has to kill it three times. It's not like beating a dead horse or something like that. It's very obvious that what God is communicating through the repetition is that this is dead, 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 dead. The Bible emphasizes things by repeating it. Dying you will die when you eat of the tree. Holy, holy, holy. That's how it emphasizes things through repetition. And so it does that through repeating different ideas as well. Gog is this conglomeration. As we go deeper into the prophets, we learn that this is true, that the nations of Babylon and Syria are typology for every nation yet to come. And God is making the point that no matter how many nations rise up against Israel, he will destroy them, cut off the head. And if a new head rises, he'll cut it off until the end times. The only other time that Gog and Magog ever appear in the Bible is he's described as the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. Those regions have not been discovered anywhere. These names of Magog, Meshech, Tubal, and Gomer, and Togarmar appear in Genesis 10, 2-3, as descendants of Japheth. And this is where they get the idea of the Russia. Japheth kind of populated the northern eastern parts of Russia and um, Asia and that kind of stuff. And the second place that Gog shows up is as the personal name of a man in 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 4. Over time, the Jews treated Gog of Magog as a typology. All throughout Jewish history, they saw it as a typology. They did not see this as a literal guy coming from a literal region coming against it. They saw it as a typology. And they begin to morph it into Gog and Magog. And so when you read other apocalyptic literature like Enoch and that kind of stuff, they refer to it as Gog and Magog. But it is so obvious that it is typology, especially in these apocalyptic books. This seems to be the way that John is using it. John would have been very familiar with apocalyptic literature. We talked about like that was like the Andy Griffith of the time period or the friends of the time period, whatever your generation was on, okay? Or the golden girls of that time period, okay? It was what everybody knew when everybody was reading and watching, so to speak. And so the fact that John is using it the way that apocalyptic literature and the Jews are using it means that he's definitely influenced by it and he's, or he's tapping into that idea. The idea is that he is using this as a metaphor. You do not use it in the exact same way that other people are using it and then be like, oh, by the way, but I don't mean that. Okay, so this is most likely a typology of just all the nations coming together. And we're not meant to see this as a specific nation, but rather re referencing back to Ezekiel. I think the whole idea of mentioning Gog and Magog is to say, I'm going to annihilate it. Just like I annihilated it the first time. Just like it represents all the nations, and just like I brought a complete end to everything that opposed Israel at that time period, so now it also represents all the nations, but this time it represents all the nations. Not just of the surrounding of Israel, but of all the world, and I'm going to truly annihilate it. And the same idea comes down, fire from heaven, and consumes it. And I think this is just meant to be an absolute just taking you back to Ezekiel 38 and 39. 
And I think every single Jew would have saw that that way based on the influence of apocalyptic literature. And so they're completely destroyed. And now Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. He is no more. I mean, he exists still. But his reign, his influence, his whatever is completely gone. And at this point, the world and the devil and the beast and the false prophet, they're all gone. All that is left is the flesh. All that is left is the flesh. And that's going to be dealt with as well. That's going to be dealt with as well. There is literally nothing external to ourselves, the devil or the world's ideas, that can influence humanity in a sinful, rebellious kind of way ever again from this point on. All that's left is the flesh. Now, once again, we talked about this. But the people have already been resurrected. Are they already transformed now? Is the flesh no longer influencing them? Or is there another resurrection to come? Most likely they're already transformed. They're already not affected. But there have been people who have been born over this last thousand years. So then God goes on. Verse 11. Then I saw a large white throne, and the one who was seated on it, the earth and the one who was seated on it, the earth and heaven fled from his presence, and no place was found for them. I don't take this as literally the heaven and the earth are fleeing away. As I mentioned already, the Hebrew word oranos can be translated heaven or sky, which is usually understood by the context. However, sometimes the context makes it difficult to understand what is going on. Here is difficult to know, but usually when it's paired with the earth, it means sky. So it's like the sky and the earth together, and they form what's called a mirism, two parts referring to the whole, the alpha, the omega, nuts and bolts, flesh and blood. They refer to things referring to the whole, and that's usually how it's being used. It's really hard to then raise the dead from the earth of the unbelievers that the earth is gone. And it's really hard for Christ to bring down heaven to earth in the next chapter if heaven is gone. The earth and the sky fling is not literal, as this is used in a metaphorical description of Yahweh's entering into creation. We see in 2 Samuel 22, Psalm 18, Isaiah 34, Isaiah 50, and on and on and on that God actually refers to the sky fleeing multiple times throughout history as he comes in to deal with the nations. So when he came to deal with the Assyrians, the sky fled. When he came to deal with the Babylonians, the sky fled. When he came to deal with the, the Persians, the sky fled. So the fact that this language has been used multiple times throughout history and there's no record of the sky disappearing and going away and then like coming back again means that this is definitely being used as a metaphor. The point is that the boundaries and the structures of the world have been removed for the arrival of Yahweh's kingdom on earth. That all the structures that have maintained a human order of sin and rebellion are removed. And everything that would hinder the coming of Yahweh to earth, and I mean that very loosely, um, has been removed. And everything has been made available for Christ, for Yahweh to, to come. But what the idea here is the old way, the old system has fled. The world, the devil, and now the flesh, it is all gone. It is all fled. And most of the time when Paul talks about this day, he's referring to the ideas of the world, the philosophies of the world, not the end of the world as itself. 
You cannot have people just floating around in outer space waiting a judgment seat because all of creation fled. That just does not make sense with at least more detail. No place was found for them. I saw the dead from the great and the small standing before the throne. Then the books were open and another book was opened. And the book of life. So the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to their deeds. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. Once again, if the earth has fled, you can't have this sea. Give up the dead. And the sea, Hades gave up the dead. Hades is just the, the, the Greek word for the underworld, the afterlife. Pretty much everybody goes. And what kind of life you have there is dependent upon your works. Um, Hades gave up the dead and that were in them, and each one was judged according to his deeds. This is the second resurrection, where the unbelievers are now raised from the dead, and all those who just died a few minutes ago in that great battle are probably brought back to life now, and they face the judgment seat. This goes back to Daniel chapter 7 and Ezekiel 1, of the idea of God's throne showing up and dealing with everybody. This is the second resurrection. The dead are given. Now, these books are not literal. I really don't think that there's a huge line of the, what, 20 billion something people that have ever lived. I mean, there's 8 billion right now. There's multiple people in the past. There's going to be multiple people in the future for it's another 1,000 or 2,000 years before God comes. And they're all just like standing in line like the BMV waiting to go to the throne to judge. And God literally has to like go through a book like, hmm, um, Jenkins, 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 Jenkins. It's not like you're voting and it takes them forever to find your registration, okay? The idea is that they're metaphorical. God does not need a book to tell him who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. The idea is that God does know and that this has already been determined. And I think what's really important here is that there is, is it's, a, it's a record. It's not like God is just making this up it's not based on what he feels in the moment when you get there. It's not like he had a bad day on the road and decides to make some decisions about you. It's that there is a record. It is detailed, it is organized, and it is based on your decisions. The two books are the book of the law and the book of the Lamb. And the idea is, remember when Christ died, he died for all sins. All sins were paid for, and everything has been atoned for. Nobody goes to hell. <coughs> For any of their sins. Nobody. What you go to hell for is whether you accept the cross or not. That's the unforgivable sin. I really truly believe when Christ says the only unforgivable sin is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's the rejection of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And this goes back to what the First Testament called a high-handed sin. A high-handed sin, when you committed sins, the sacrificial sins the sacrificial system would atone for pretty much every sin that you would ever commit or cover, okay? Except for what the Bible called the high-handed sin. And the idea of the high-handed sin is that you either are literally or metaphorically shaking your fist at God and saying, screw you, I will live how I want to live, I don't care about your judgments. You're either doing that in your heart or you're doing that like literally in some kind of way. And there is no sacrifice for that because there is no repentance. Not that you can't repent of that, but if you're dying like that, you're not repenting. And somebody who's doing this, shaking their fist at God, are not saying, I want to repent and make a sacrifice for that. And so that's the sin that's unforgivable. It's the rejection of the sacrificial system. 
It's the rejection of the atonement that God has provided for you. So when Christ comes along and says the only unforgivable sin is the blasting of the Holy Spirit, it would fit into that same vein. That it's the total rejection of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The only thing that redeems us, the only thing that allows us to come into the presence of God without dying and to dwell with them is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And the only thing that makes the indwelling of the Holy Spirit possible is Jesus dying on the cross for you. And so Jesus even said, you can deny me and reject me, but if you die without the Holy Spirit, there is no regeneration. There is no renewal. There is no resurrection for you. And they eternal life kind of a sense. And I really don't think that Christ's death selectively picked certain people. Like, well, I know you're not going to accept Christ, so there's no point in my blood covering you. And I know that this I, his death was so efficient and so sufficient that it just covered everything. And now, and you see this too with Moses. Moses is a great example. In chapter 32, they worship the golden calf. And God says, I'm going to kill them all. And he had every right, because the law said, if you do this, you will die. And they all agreed to the law, and they all signed the covenant in the blood of the Lamb. And then they all 40 days, not all, worship the golden calf. And according to the covenant that they made with God, he's not a harsh, unrealistic God. They signed the contract, and no lawyer would defend you. Okay? They were going to die. And Moses says, please forgive them. And God says, okay. It was that easy. And then later, in the two chapters later, God says, I'm a compassionate and merciful God, forgiving people to the thousandth generation. Because that's his primary default character. He's just and he's merciful. But without the cross, he has to be merciful. And he wants to ultimately be merciful on the cross. And we talked about that. The cross is the only place that justice and mercy come together simultaneously. But when Moses went down the mountain and saw them, he basically turned and said, who is with me? And the Levites were the only ones who stood with him. And he said, go and kill all those who stand against you. And they went through the crowd and they killed 3,000 people. Now, what was going on here? The whole entire nation should have died. But God's like, yeah, but I don't really like those 3,000. So go ahead and kill them. No. The idea was that all of them should have died. Anywhere between 58 to 7,800,000 people. We don't know the exact numbers. They all should have died. But Moses gained forgiveness for them. So who then is dying? 3,000 is a lot of people dying. But compared to how many people should have died, that's not a lot. I, that's kind of relative there. And I get that. It means the people who did not repent. Moses gained forgiveness. And all sins were paid for. But when Moses came down to offer the forgiveness, those who said, screw that, I still don't care. I still want to worship the golden calf. They were the ones who died because they refused the gift of forgiveness. And I think that idea is a very prominent passage in the First Testament. This is where you get a really good idea of God's character as merciful and just. And that idea becomes the foundation for what's happening at the cross. That idea becomes the foundation of what's happened on the cross. What we're talking about here is that the book of the Lamb means you have accepted Christ, and therefore you will live. And if you're not in the book of the Lamb, you haven't accepted Christ, and therefore you will go to the lake of fire based on that choice, not your sins. 
Now, it says they were judged according to their works and deeds, and you're like, well, that completely goes against what you just said, Corey. But I don't think that's, I don't think God's up there like, when I was growing up, I heard some youth pastors say, when you die and go to heaven, there's going to be a jumbo screen in heaven, and it's going to play all your sins that you've ever been committed, and you're going to answer for that. That scares the crap out of you when you're a kid. You're trusting this youth pastor. And that's not anti-youth pastor. That's just the only people I ever heard say that was youth pastors. God is not in the business of shaming you. God is not a God who shames you. Shame is good because it helps you feel the heaviness and the reality of your sin. But it is meant to literally be temporary to move you to repentance. But if shame does not move you into repentance or you just wallow in it, it's not good. And to publicly bring you up, there is nothing, nothing in the entire Bible nor anything in God's character that suggests that that is exactly what he would do. He's not that kind of a God. And I don't think he's going to read off all your works or something like that. That's not how he deals with us. If our works can't save us, then I don't think their works will judge us. I think the idea of judging your works is the idea that your degree of where you're located, just like your faithfulness to God determines what talents that you get, their degree of sins might determine how you're going, to, where you're going to go, where you're going to be located at. But I think more specifically than that, it's just going to say, I justly can condemn you because the law always brings death because you can never have good enough works and you rejected the lamb. And I don't think God's listing your works and saying, oh, now we got to give you this level of hell. And we're, oh, no, you get this level of hell. I think the idea is, I'm going to show you how I'm completely just. This is what righteousness looks like. And this is my son that I offered to die for you. And you rejected my son. And not only that, you couldn't meet the requirements of the law. And this is why you definitely are not coming into my presence. I think that's the only idea that's being here, is that you can't meet either requirement. You couldn't meet the requirement of the law, and you couldn't meet the requirement of accepting the Son. And therefore, you are not going to make it into my presence. And I think that's what the judgment is. I think the idea is that God is just showing you. We have no idea what this is going to be like. It probably could happen one second. Because it's God. But God is breaking this down with imagery that we can understand so that we have an idea that he's a just God. That he's a just God when he does this. And once the dead were dealt with, then even death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. I don't think this is the idea of people in death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire because they were already taken out and then they were thrown in the lake of fire. So death and Hades are empty. The idea is that they're being thrown in the lake of fire, meaning the ideas the concepts, the prisons are being thrown in there. And maybe even the idea of the demonic world. There's this idea that, that Hades is also connected to the demonic world, so the demonic world is giving up its hold over you. And, and now you're on your own, standing before God. Anyone's name who was not found in the book of the life, that person was thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the moment that literally everything has been dealt with. The beast, the Babylon is gone. The beast and the false prophet are gone. The dragon is gone. And all the unbelievers are gone. It is at this point that we've kind of cleaned house. 
And the next chapter is the remodeling, so to speak. And I mean that for total lack of words and analogies. Okay? He has cleaned house, and now we can begin to restructure things. Now, let's talk about the lake of fire. I do not believe. First, I believe the lake of fire is a literal place. I don't believe it's in this dimension. I believe it's another dimension. But I believe it's a very literal place. I know it's a place because all the language are they're thrown there, they were placed in there, they were sent there. All these are location words that are being used. I do not think it's annihilation. I do not think it's annihilation. I don't think it's biblical because we're told multiple times that they were tormented forever and ever and ever and ever. Okay? That's not annihilation. You're not tormented forever if it's annihilation. This is a real place where people will go for all eternity. I do not believe that it's a literal lake of fire. All throughout the Bible, fire is used of judgment. There are many places that we're told that a fire came and it was not literal. There are places where a fire came and it was a literal way of destroying them. But I do not think that this is a literal lake of fire. We're told that they're going to be thrown into a lake of fire where there is darkness. You cannot have a lake of fire and darkness at the same time. And I know you're like, well, God can No, that's not how he does things. He established the laws of physics so that we can have categories to understand things. And if he rejects or violates those things, then it no longer is a good communicator. And if he does reject or redefine things, then he must redefine things because he's a good communicator. And so this is not happening at the same time, darkness and fire. Darkness is symbolic of rebellion and sin. And fire is a symbol of judgment. And it's where the rebellious and sinful are going to go for judgment, period. I really truly do want, I also don't believe this is a lake of fire because I do not believe a good God would torment people. I do not really believe in the far side comic of hell, I, which is based on the Dante's Inferno of hell. That is a Greek understanding of hell. In the Greek world, hell was a place where you got tormented by demons then Dante's Inferno, greatly influenced by the Greek world, brought that in and had demons and the devil poking you in the butt with pitchforks and that kind of stuff. And Farsight Comic made a joke out of it. I don't mean that in an anti-him kind of a way. I mean, they're funny comics. That's not God. Every single time God told him to destroy the Canaanites, or destroy them, he never allowed for mutilation or torture. They did sometimes, but he was not okay with that. He is not a God. If this is truly his children, and I say if because they are, they are his children, and he loves them so much that he was willing to die on the cross for them. And his desire is that none shall perish, but all have eternal life. I cannot reconcile that with a God who says, now I'm going to torture you for all eternity. I'm going to burn you, rip you apart, stab you in the butt for all eternity. That does not fit the character of God, period. I, I will go head-to-head -head with anybody on that. I think God sends them there because they reject him, but I think it breaks his heart and messes with him. And, and I think that even the idea of them being there is enough torture for him than to go overboard and torture them even more. I really think all throughout the Bible, the idea of death is separation. From the very beginning, death was defined as separation. When Adam and Eve were told, dying you will die, and they ate the fruit, they didn't immediately croak and have a heart attack and die. But they were immediately separated from the presence of God. And heaven was immediately separated from earth. 
And then eventually, when you live long enough without heaven and without God, the body is going to fall apart and you're going to become separated from it as well. And death is used of relationships and all that kind of stuff of God. And I really truly believe that the ultimate lake of fire is just a place where God doesn't exist. And in Romans, we're told that he gave them over to their desires. And we see this all there about, you want a king? Fine, I'll give you a king. You want a temple? Fine, I'll give you a temple. You want to worship idols? Fine, I'll let you worship idols. But you're going to reap the consequences of those choices. I don't want you to. I love you. And at any time you repent, I will be there ready to receive you back. But I will give you over to what you want. And that's what we see from God over and over and over and over again. And I think God, all he's done is that God has created a place in another dimension where he doesn't exist. And he says, you don't want to be with me? Fine. I want to be with you. And I have moved heaven and earth and died on the cross to make a place available for you. But if you don't want that, I will never violate your free choice. And here's a place where I don't exist. The torment is psychological. It's emotional. All throughout the Bible, when this word of torment is used, it's mostly referring to psychological torment, emotional torment. And I think the idea is that they go there and they want to be there. But then they create their own hell. Think about it. There are Christians on this earth right now with the Holy Spirit indwelling them. The presence of God is on this earth right now. General revelation. The Spirit of God is working in everybody's life right now, whether they realize it or not. The fruits of the Spirit are being poured out on the earth for everybody right now, whether they realize it or not. And have we done a pretty good job, despite that, creating our own hell on earth? The Khmer Rouge with Cambodia, World War II, World War I, Vietnam, serial killers, corrupt governments, dictatorships, on and on, right? World history is full of hell on earth. I'm not saying every moment is hell on earth and every place is, but we have plenty of places where we've done a pretty good job. Now imagine a place where God doesn't exist, the Holy Spirit's not there, the fruits of the Spirit are not there now. What is humanity going to do? Create an even worse hell on earth. And I think it's just humans doing what they've always wanted to do, live their own life for their own purposes, regardless of how that affects other people, and there's no Holy Spirit, there's no God, and there's no fruits of Spirit. And we create our own hell. God gave us a good creation, and we turned it into hell. And now he's going to give them a place where he doesn't exist, and they're going to turn it into hell. And I really think that fits the character of God better. That you are doing this to yourselves. I'm not doing this to you. And I've given you every opportunity to escape, but I will give you what you want. But how do you describe that to a bunch of people who don't want to be with God? Oh, yeah, God, thank you. That's a horrible punishment. That's exactly what I want. I want a place where you don't exist. I lived my entire life making fun of you, mocking you on SNL and all these other things and movies and that kind of stuff. I think you're dumb. I even make fun of Christians. Like, Or if I don't make fun of them, I still think this Christianity thing is a stupid idea and a crutch, right? 
And God says, you're not going to be with me for all eternity. And they're like, oh, scary God. Well, what do you do? You use language that they will understand. Fire, torment, darkness, gnashing of teeth, weeping. Because that's what it will be in a way. It's just that he didn't start the fires. They will. Does that kind of make sense? And I really think the only reason we have this language here is not to say God is like, ha, 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 and throws them in the lake of fire where they just melt for all eternity because that's the kind of God he is. I think he's just using really strong graphic language because in the ancient world and even today, one of the things that we fear a lot is burning to death. And how he's trying to describe a torment that unbelievers would not care about unless he used certain graphic language. You don't get it yet, but this is going to be torment for all eternity. And I didn't do it to you. You did it to yourself. And I really, really, truly believe that. Uh, I will argue to him blue in the face because I really think that the character of God hinges on that, that theological idea. Now, it might be a little bit different and da-da-da-da-da-da-da because I've never been to either one, but I think it's way closer to that than Dante's Inferno. I just, I can't see a God. I can't see him doing that. So is it, possible that the people are able to leave the lake of fire eventually throughout eternity and come back and go to heaven I'd mentioned this last week I don't think people who go there will actually want to leave I think that's the real point of the parable of the rich man Lazarus I think the people who go there really truly don't ever want to come to Christ I don't know if it's necessarily that no one ever could repent I think it's just that nobody ever will. If you're the kind of person that shakes your fist at God and goes to that kind of a place, I don't think that kind of place is going to convince you. This place is still real. It's a literal destination. And they are going to reap the consequences. Period. 